0: the second letter to the Church of the Thessalonians. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Your faith is growing more and more despite your hardships and suffering. God uses this persecution to develop us, but judgment will come for those who abuse you. The end is coming, but it will not come until the Antichrist is first revealed. He will exalt himself over everything and proclaim himself to be God. Many will follow him, but will be lost forever because of it. The day is coming for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, and we will come with him from heaven with his powerful angels. Jesus will overthrow the Antichrist with just a word spoken, and he will reign over all creation in triumph. God has chosen you to be saved by the work of his Spirit and by your faith May you continue to be faithful to the Lord and walk in obedience to Him, so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in and through your life. Until that day, we will all be together with our Lord.
1: Well, we just sang, we'll be a church ready for you. Is that going to be true? It is. It is. It is. We want God to find us faithful, don't we? we got to be faithful. we got to walk with him. There was a, a pastor and a priest who became great friends. And they decided that being great friends, they would do a project together. So they got on the side of the road and they had this humongous sign. Such a giant sign because they had so many words on the sign, which sounds like two preachers, doesn't it? And this was what was on the sign. The end is just around the corner. Stop and turn around before it's too late. That's the sign. The first motorist goes by and he sees the sign. And he yells at them. Leave us alone, you crazy fanatics. And keeps right on driving. He goes around the curve, and immediately there's the screech of brakes and tires and a giant splash. And a plume of water comes up. And the pastor turns to the priest and said, I don't know, maybe we should have just said, bridge out ahead. (laughs) Okay, I know it's not all that funny, but it is worth a chuckle, right? Come on, a little chuckle. And the truth is, when we look at the world in which we live in, we just see bridges out ahead everywhere. We see so many problems, so many difficulties, so many struggles, and we cannot help but see a, a world that has got so many problems with so few solutions, and we we believe this, this world it's going to come to an end. And scientists today actually are telling us it is very legitimate to have that feeling. The scientists that have been assigned to the doomsday clock. Have you ever heard of this? The doomsday clock. When the you can you can google this but don't do it while I'm preaching. Just do it after the service is over. Doomsday clock, you'll you can read all about it. And just three months ago, those scientists that are in charge of the doomsday clock moved the the hands to two minutes before midnight, with midnight meaning the end of the world. The Bible says that is justified. Because God brought this world into existence and he's going to take it back out again. And in fact, the Bible even gives to us many of the things, lists for us, many of the things that will happen as the end comes and that's our series. We're going to the book of 2 Thessalonians verse by verse together and 2 Thessalonians is just a miniature book of Revelation. Paul deals with all of the basic concepts that we find in the book of Revelation as he talks about the end days. The book of Revelation was written 40 years after the book of 2 Thessalonians, but it's amazing how they merge together. In the first chapter, we talked about judgment that's coming and the two ideas of judgment one the Bible talks about a judgment that's coming for those who are Christ followers hopefully for everyone in this room but probably not but for those who are genuine Christ followers in which we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the Bible talks about this yes all the things we've done both good and bad are dealt with but it talks about this in a very positive way But then the Bible talks about a judgment that's coming for those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior as the great white throne judgment, an awesome, a fearful thing. Then when we got into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's two themes of this chapter. One is there is going to be this amazing world leader that emerges and it talks about The glorious return of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the first one of those right now. This great world leader that will emerge. And last week as we began chapter 2, we saw Paul say to us there's three things that have to align for this last days to have arrived. First of all, there is to be a great apostasy. The word apostasy means the departure from the faith, from the faith of the Bible, from the truth of God's word. And he is saying that in the last days there will be people who have said that they are Christ followers that will will depart from the faith and whole churches that will depart from the faith, from the word of God, and hold denominations that will depart from the Word of God. Aren't we seeing this happen in front of our very eyes today? May that not be us. May we stay true to the Word of God. But in the last day, there will be a great apostasy that happens in which people depart from the Word of God. Second of all, there will be this great world leader who emerges That we're learning about, I shared with you last week, what Daniel had said about him and what Paul said, at least part of what Paul said about him. And we'll learn more today. Third of all, he says the restrainer who keeps... All of this in check until the moment that it's supposed to be loose, This the restrainer, the Holy Spirit of God. And at this moment, he releases and all hell breaks loose and all the evil of hell upon this earth. And that's what Paul taught us last Sunday. Now let's keep going with what Paul is teaching us. Look with me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. This is this is Paul's uh, word instead of Antichrist, the lawless one. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles. This guy will have miraculous powers, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Let's pray. Father, open eyes today, open hearts today. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And Father, we pray that you would move among us because, Lord, in this room, there are some who have never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe they've gone through hoops. Maybe they have done all the right religious things. But the truth is in their heart of hearts they know. That it's all been to please someone else. And they still have not come to know you. And I pray, Father, that this would be the day of salvation for many in this room. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that before we take off into this passage of Scripture, that getting a sense of context, of sort of timeline of the events that are happening so we can put it in the right order would be a help to us. I've shared with you that, you know, there's not just one way of viewing the second coming of Christ, but I have chosen to view it from a premillennial viewpoint. There's a reason, There are reasons why I have done this. First of all, what I discovered is that there are a lot of writings beginning at... The Bible's all written, but other writings that began in the end of the first century that go forward that are called the, the writings of the early church fathers. And what this means is that these are guys who were pastors and bishops of some of the great churches of the second century and third century and fourth century. And they, they would write letters to each other. They would write uh, treatises that were defense for the faith and that kind of thing, and we still have them. It's amazing to read them. It's fantastic to read these things were written by people in the second century, and what they thought and how they interpreted scripture and that sort of thing. And we have we have so many, most of them still in our possession. And what I've noticed is, is that many of the writers that talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ in the second century and beyond were premillennial in their view of the return of Christ. For instance, the apostle John discipled three men. Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S, was one of those three guys. And he's the only one of the three that really writes about the second coming. But Papias, when he writes about the second coming is writing from a premillennial position. And I'm thinking to myself, well, here is a guy that was personally discipled by John who wrote the book of Revelation. If anybody's going to know what the book of Revelation was meant to be, it would be John. And wouldn't it make sense he would tell those who are his disciples, personal disciples. And it's interesting because Papias then disciples a guy named Irenaeus, who becomes the greatest theologian in the second century. The most amazing theologian in the second century. And when he writes about the second coming, it is from a premillennial viewpoint. And when I came to realize that, that was so powerful to me. That really pointed me in a direction. Then, when you read the Bible and you read these passages that deal with the second coming of Christ, and you just read them for for what they say, and you just believe what they say. You will almost always end up as a premillennialist. In order to believe something else, you've got to have somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, okay, now I know you just read that, but God didn't mean that. He meant this. And I'm thinking, no, I think probably he meant this. These are the reasons, some of the reasons why I made the decision. This is the direction I'm going. So from a premillennial viewpoint... There are six basic events that lays out for us in God's Word in the end times. Here's the first one. The Bible then describes the world will grow progressively worse. And aren't we seeing that in front of our very eyes? Jesus is talking about that in Matthew chapter 24. Number two, the true followers of Jesus Christ will be raptured away and will experience our own judgment for believers called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's some premillennialists that believe in a middle of the tribulation period rapture and some at the end. Everything that I have seen from God's word points in my mind, at least, to a pre-tribulation rapture, that the second thing that happens is we are taken out of here. And yay, God, for that, I can hardly wait. We're taken out of here, and then we experience our judgment seat of Christ. Then... There will be seven years of tribulation in which the world will see the emergence of a great world leader that the Bible calls the Antichrist. Here is where we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's the third thing at the end of the seven years, Christ will return to the earth, defeat the Antichrist at the battle of Armageddon, and all of Israel that's alive at that point will accept Jesus as their Messiah. We're going to be seeing these two things over the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to be seeing the return of Christ, and then the week after, the battle of Armageddon. Number five, Christ will set up a thousand-year reign on this earth called the millennial reign of Christ. And at the end of that thousand years will be the great white throne judgment where all who do not know Christ will then be judged. And then comes the sixth thing. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and time shall be no more. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Many of you in this room love to go deeper in your in your knowledge of Scripture and that sort of thing. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Take one of these events a day, maybe today or tomorrow. Take the first one and read what Jesus has to say in uh, Matthew chapter 24. The next day, then take the next, the number two one, and read the passages of Scripture that I give you. I give you a ton of Scriptures so that you can really dig deeper and understand more of what the Bible teaches about this subject. Now, last Sunday we began in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we began by looking at the three things that must line up for the end to be. Now, notice what else now Paul writes. Paul then is talking about... The Antichrist's power that emerges. And notice what he says. He says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles. Did you know this? Did you know that when this guy comes, he'll be able to do miracles? Miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil. In every generation... Every time zone, there have been great evil leaders who have emerged. In the Roman Empire, we think of the guy named Caliglia who was mentally deranged, who was a Caesar. And we think of Nero who was such an evil man who was a Caesar. And then Diocletian is a name that not a lot of people are familiar with, but he actually was more evil than the other two. And in fact, he put to death far more Christians than Nero ever dreamed of putting to death. He was an evil, godless man who hated Christianity, who hated Christians, and put them to to death by the thousands. Then... In the 20th century, we think of Hitler, we think of Stalin, we, we think of Mao uh, uh, Mao Zedong, and we think of the evil guys that lived. But i got to tell you, that you can look into every one of their biographies and do all the research you want to do. None of them ever got to the level of what the Bible teaches, what Daniel and John and Paul teach about the description of this man, this man will be able to do miracles and signs and wonders by the power of Satan through the permission of God. Satan cannot do anything without the permission of God. And it is for this moment in time. Miracles mean supernatural events. Signs are simply meaning pointing to the person who has performed the supernatural events. And wonders are the reaction of the people who have seen the miracle of this person. They're in wonder. They're in awe. All of these are powered by Satan, which will come through the Antichrist with the power of God. And they're called by Paul as counterfeit, not because they're fake, but because they lead people to make a false evaluation about who this man is. They come to believe this guy is of God, maybe he's God himself, and they follow him and worship him because of the miracles. The Apostle John even tells us what one of these miracles are. He says in the 13th chapter of Revelation and and verse 3, he says that this man, this Antichrist, suffers a head wound that is fatal. Fatal means he dies. But then, all of a sudden in front of everybody, in front of the whole world it says, He comes back to life. There's never been a time that the whole world could have seen anything until CNN, right? Until television. Now, now, and with video, the whole world sees this. This is what it says, that the whole world sees it. And, And at this very moment, he becomes fully possessed by Satan himself. Listen to what John says about this in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 and the last part of that verse. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast who is the word for the Antichrist. Men worship the dragon. Now, the dragon is Satan and if your notes say false prophet, cross that out and write the word Satan above it. Men worship worship the dragon, which is Satan, because he had given authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they also worship the beast. And they ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now notice he says, the whole world. He's not talking about a leader of just a section or a, a, a kingdom inside the world. And the rest of the world doesn't know anything that's going on. He is saying the whole world. And he says that the whole world is astonished, which is a word that means in awe. They are in awe of this man and they follow him. Now there's one more thing that John tells us. He says there's Satan, there is the anti-Christ, and then there's a third character. In Revelation 13, verse 11 and 12, then I saw another beast. This is a third character. Who is the false prophet? He names him as the false prophet later on in Revelation. Coming out of the earth, he made the earth and its inhabitants worshiped the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Satan is allowed by God, permission from God, to give to this Antichrist Three things. He is allowed to give him power, supernatural power to perform these miracles by permission. Second of all, he gives him a throne. And we're not surprised by this because you remember after the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus went up on that mountain and he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he suffered those temptations, those harsh temptations by Satan. One of the temptations, if we remember, is that Satan said to him, if you worship me, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus said no, the Antichrist says yes. And third, he gives him great authority. Here is a man who does what he wants, all he pleases to do. Fully possessed by Satan himself, he literally takes over dominance in the entire world. Think with me for a moment, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet And the purpose of the false prophet is to bring worship to the Antichrist. It is almost like a trinity, isn't it? An evil trinity. And it is exactly what Satan does. He always counterfeits. He always mimics. He, He has wanted to be so badly, he has wanted to usurp God in the world. He has wanted to be the God of this world. And this is his moment. And what... Paul is describing in this this description of the Antichrist is a guy who now has all the power, all the authority, and he takes over everything, empowered by Satan himself. There's something else that Paul says in the passage. He says that there will be many who will be lost during the tribulation period. And notice how he puts it in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends to them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. What Paul is saying is that during the tribulation period, the vast majority of those who are living will be lost forever. And John, in his explanation, says that they will take a mark called the mark of the beast. And the moment they take the mark, there is no hope for them now. There is never another opportunity for them once they take that mark. They are lost not because they didn't have opportunity. They are lost not because they did not have a choice, but because they refused. To love the truth and so be saved, they walked away from God. There is something very important I need to share with you about this. A person comes to know Jesus Christ not because they understand and can list a set of facts, not because they have mental assent about some things in the Bible. It has to be something deeper, a love of the truth. There has to be something deeper than a set of facts about God and the resurrection and that sort of thing. And that's why in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, here's how he puts it. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord... What does it mean for Jesus to be your Lord? It means that he is your boss. It means that you have given the throne of your heart away to him. It means that you no longer sit on your throne and Satan does not sit on your throne. You have given the throne of your heart, of your life to God. I want you to be my boss. I want you to be in charge of my life. I yield my life The control of my life to you. This is what he's saying. The word confess means that you say what is true. If you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus, you are my Lord. You're the boss of my life. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not enough... To say, oh, of course I believe in God. Of, of course I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's not enough. That is a mental ascent. That's not enough. And that's why he says, believe in your heart. So many people, especially people raised in church, so many people never allow it to get from their head to their heart. To get to your heart means, and I commit myself to you. I so believe in the resurrection of Christ that I commit, Lord, my life to you. I want to live for you. I want to love you. I want to do what pleases you. Yes, I fail. Yes, I do what is wrong. But in the midst of that, oh, God, I love you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And he says that if we confess with our mouth the truth, you're my boss. You're the Lord of my life. And believe in our heart, which means I commit myself to him, that Jesus rose from the dead. We're saved we're saved John writes in the book of revelation that during these 7 years of tribulation we've been taken out we're in heaven but during this 7 years of tribulation many people will come to faith in Christ many people will be saved but most of those John says will be martyred, and most of those who are martyred will be beheaded. It's amazing to me. I never even heard of beheading in our culture until just the last couple of decades. And where did this come from? It's coming from everywhere now. We got people killing each other in America by beheading them. Where did this come from? It is emerging now. It's just Crazy to me to be reading that, knowing what John has said, that most of those who come to know Christ in the seven years of tribulation will be martyred, and most of those will be beheaded. But many of those, most of the people in the world will be lost, and it's not because they didn't have the opportunity. It is because they refused. They refused the truth. It's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23 verse 37. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you had killed the prophets and stoned those who sent those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather you your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What Jesus was saying about people then is true about people now, and maybe even in this room, God has come to you. He has said to you, "This convicted you, you need me. I'm asking you to give your heart to Christ. No, 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 no. And in that day, the same, and notice the description that happened, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, for this reason, because they had willfully rejected God, God sends them a powerful delusion So they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. What does this mean? It is God saying, okay, I will give you what you want. I will remove my convicting spirit from you. You have made your choice. It is now in stone. The Bible talks about a hardening of a heart, in which the heart becomes so hardened, nothing can penetrate it anymore. No one can come to God outside of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about this. Jesus said it, that the only way that a person can come to God is the Holy Spirit of God to draw you. And the want to in your heart is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh, look at the sin in your life. Look at how you could be saved and changed. Look at the rescue that God could bring in your life. And the want to inside of you is the Holy Spirit of God drawing you But listen to me, it is possible to say no for the last time. It is possible to say no, no, not today, not this Sunday, maybe next week, but not right now. No, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, and then God says, okay, there'll be no more conviction. There'll be no more drawing. I will give you what you want. And there'll be a never another time. There are people that say, well, you know, one day I'll get, I'll get around to that. You don't even know that you'll ever have that. And I'm not talking about that you're dying. The withdrawal of the Spirit is what he's describing in the passage. In the Old Testament, when Moses was standing before the Egyptian Pharaoh, asking him to let the people of Israel go, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There are other places in the Bible where it says, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Which one is it? Listen to what John MacArthur says about and he's referring to this very verse in 2 Thessalonians 2, but here's what he says. The story of Pharaoh is a grim reminder that God will judicially harden the hearts of those who persist persist in hardening their own hearts against the truth. Because Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, fixing him in a path from which He could never return. It is simply God saying, okay, have what you want. I will never convict you again. I'll never draw you again. That is what Paul is describing in this passage. Here's what I want to say to everyone in this room. Some of you grew up in church and you're a little kid and you just went through the motions because your parents wanted you to do that. Others of you don't know much at all about the the Bible, but and here you are and, and there is part of us that says, no, I, I am not going to make any decision for Christ. I, I am not going to give my heart to Christ, even though there is this war that's going on inside, this drawing of the spirit, and this battle that is happening. And here's what I'm asking. Don't wait too long. Don't assume that that will be there in the future. This is what he is saying in the, in the verse. That there is a day in which God will say, Okay. Your will be done and I'll never ask you again. How does all this fit into God's plan? How does it work? you got to go back to an understanding of what this seven years of tribulation is about. First, this is Satan's last desperate attempt to destroy the work of God through the introduction of Satan's own Messiah, the Antichrist, and his attempt to lead the entire world in rebellion against God. And he succeeds but second of all, this is God's final attempt to bring as many people to himself as possible. What God is using right now is softness and kindness and patience. Just as the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. He is being patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they might turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn your, from your evil ways. God is saying, I love you, I want you. Give your heart to me. Today, God is using softness and kindness and patience. But in these seven years of tribulation, John, as he talks about it in the book of Revelation, says God will use judgment and wrath as the final tool to convince people to come to him, and still most will reject him. The third thing is this. The great tribulation is the final judgment of God on this earth Against the sin and wickedness of man. The Antichrist will be successful. For these seven years, it looks like nobody could conquer this guy. Nobody could overcome this guy. But Daniel in the Old Testament, 2,600 years ago, writing about this guy, says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, when they feel secure, he, meaning the Antichrist, will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princesses who is Jesus. Yet he will be destroyed but not by human power, but by divine power at the coming of Jesus Christ in the glorious return of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at next Sunday. Be here next Sunday as we look at what will happen when Jesus comes back and lands on the Mount of Olives, what's going to happen in that day. And that's what we'll talk about out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you listen to me? If God is speaking to your heart, if there is a want to in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit saying, would you give your heart to Christ? Would you come to me? Would you, would you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Don't say no to him today. Don't say no to him today. In just a few moments, right through these center doors and across the short foyer, There's a room called Next Step Center and we invite you in just a few moments to go and talk to one of our ministers. We'd love to sit down and show you how you could know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the urgency of this word about what will come. But oh God, Even when it's not started today, your spirit is at work in the heart of many in this room. And God, we ask that they would come to you and receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior today. Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of believers in this room. Oh God, open our mouths. Help us to be witnesses of Christ to those people around us that need you. God, use us to see people come to know Christ as Savior. Use us to be a witness for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.